Uh, restoration kiddos. Are you ready? No. Yes. You can meet your teacher in the back as you go learn about Jesus from God's word. Uh, again, thank you to all the teachers and members that serve in this uh, wonderful ministry of discipling the littlest ones among us. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here, and I will be preaching a little bit more over the next month or so as Nathan is away on sabbatical. Uh, and this morning, I want to start off by asking you a question. And this is the question. Are you happy? Are you happy? So isn't that why you came here this morning? Because you think that either this gathering will make you happy, or that it at least offers the potential to be happy. So I would submit to you, all of us are motivated by that which brings us happiness, that which we think will bring us joy and bliss. So over 400 years ago, a philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal wrote this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. They will never take the least step but to this object. This happiness is the motive of every action of every man. End quote. And I think he's right. We all desire to be happy, don't we? And I'm not talking about this uh, a cotton candy happiness that's full of sugar and fluff but no substance, a happiness that's artificially sweet but it soon dissolves. I'm talking about a happiness deep down that, that, that moves beyond your circumstances, that navigates the trials of life, a, a happiness that amplifies the joys in life, that helps you get around that, that hard job, that broken relationship, those unfulfilled desires, that kind of happiness. But many of the things we chase do not end up providing what they promise. As another author writes, each of us has a restlessness, an inconsolable longing within. Some try to satisfy it with scenic vacations, creative accomplishments, sexual exploits, sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, alcohol consumption, ascetic rigors, managerial excellence, and more. Yet, our longing remains. Why? End quote. The answer to that why, I think, could be at least two things. One, the answer could be is maybe we're not actually meant to be consistently happy. Maybe life is really, truly meant to be dull and boring. It's meant to be marked by hopelessness, not happiness. Maybe that's the answer. Or maybe we're meant to have this joy, but we chase after it often in the wrong things, and we're left deflated and defeated. Which is it? Well, the Bible's resounding answer is this. God is committed to your deep, abiding joy, your supreme happiness, and he's done everything necessary to captivate the longings of your soul now and forever. Maybe that surprises you. Because too often I think the Christian faith is defined and even explained and experienced then instead of being marked by joyful happiness, it's more about prudish, impotent restrictions that's attractive to no one. Not even God. 
When you begin reading from the first page of the Bible, you'll see that God is a God of provision and pleasure, not punishment and prohibition. Do you know who the first is to question God's goodness? Do you know who the first is to suggest that God is holding out on us? Adam and Eve in the garden. God provided everything they needed for their enjoyment. And they hear a slithering, tempting voice. Did God really say? God doesn't want you to be happy like him. Take, eat, eat that which is forbidden, and then you'll be truly happy. The idea that God doesn't want us to be happy was first introduced by Satan, not by God. Adam and Eve had a choice. Where would they look for true happiness, and what would the result be? Every one of us face these same questions. Where will you look for true happiness and what will the result be? To answer those questions, we're going to look at Psalm 1 this morning. So let me invite you to stand as we read Psalm 1 together as a congregation. So let's read Psalm 1 Together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God. God. Amen. Please be seated. So as I mentioned, while Nathan's away on sabbaticals, the times that I preach over the next month or so, I'm going to preach various psalms. So let me orient us a a bit to the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms is a, a collection of 150 songs or poems. And traditionally, they're they're called what's called wisdom literature. So they provide insight, instruction, examples for how to live a a life amidst the hurts and the, the hardships and even the happy times of life. And so the the Psalms tell us how to navigate the world while trusting in God and hoping for the world that is to come. And like the rest of Scripture, the Psalms are radically God-centered, ultimately pointing us to the person and the work of Jesus. But the Psalms are also uniquely able to capture human life. They uniquely capture the portraits of human life. And so it's been said the Psalms not only speak to us, but they often speak for us. The Psalms are honest and raw. We, we find words and emotions that map onto our life. And so it's not just that we read the Psalms, but often the Psalms read us, don't they? And so this is one of the reasons why the Psalms are so deeply loved and cherished by so many. 
They give expression to the depths of our being. They, they put honest words to our confusion. They're honest about our struggles. They're sincere about life's joys. The Psalms are filled with unfiltered, heart-gripping emotion. Now listen to this sample that I put together this week from the Psalms. Loneliness. I am lonely and afflicted, Psalm 25. Gladness and exultation. I will be glad and exult in you, 9-2. Sorrow. My life is spent with sorrow, 31-10. Joy. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when wine and grain abound, 4-7. Regret. I am sorry for my sin. Discouragement. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you turmoil within me? Confession. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Shame. Shame has covered my face. Marveling. The Lord is, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Delight. I will delight in your statutes. Afraid. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Peace. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. Grief. My eyes are wasted away because of grief. Crushed. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. Gratitude. I will thank you in the great congregation. Zeal. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Affliction and pain. I am afflicted and in pain. Confidence. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Hope. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. I could go on. The Psalms give language to every season of the soul. They're filled with praise, weeping, thanksgiving, anger, lament. Sometimes we read Psalms like, are you allowed to say that? The remarkable thing that in the Psalms, man's word to God have become God's word to man to comfort and counsel and instruct us that we might live a holy and happy life. And that brings us back to Psalm 1. You'll notice the first word of Psalm 1 is blessed. And if you drop down to the very end of Psalm 2, you'll see that it ends with this. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. That is, in the Lord. Psalm 1 begins by inviting us into the blessed life. Psalm 2 ends by inviting us into this blessed life. Psalms 1 and 2 are seen as an introduction to the entire Psalter or the book of the Psalms. So just like if you were to pick up a book and there was a forward or a preface, it would orient you as to what would to follow. So it is with Psalms 1 and 2. It orients us to what follows in the rest of the book. And what follows is the blessed life. So the Psalms are answering where true happiness is found and enjoyed. And so this morning, we're going to confine our attention to Psalm 1. I'm not going to preach the whole Psalter. Just Psalm 1 this morning. And I'm going to ask those two questions. Where will you look for true happiness? And what will the result be? In verse 1 and 2, we'll see that we can look for happiness in one of two places. In verses 3 and 4, we'll see the immediate result, followed by the eternal result in verses 5 and 6. Where will you look for true happiness? Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. At first, it may seem that this blessing here is earned by avoiding some things and doing other things. So is Psalm 1 saying, out of the gate, you have to earn blessing from God? No. You will notice there are exactly zero commands in this psalm. Zero. So what we have here is the idea is not earning from God, but enjoying a relationship with God. And that comes not from our attempts at goodness, but from God's abundant grace. So the, the, this word here is happy. And, and, and the root, what's under that, it means to be, to be straight or to be right. So to be blessed is to be happy because you're right or you're straight with God, the king of the universe. And if you're right with the king of the universe, what do you have to be sad about? Nothing. The blessed one is right with God, so they're happy. And notice the psalmist does not say, blessed shall be. Blessed is. He is stating a present fact, not conditional promise. Blessed here is a position and a status, not a conditional circumstance. It's given, it's not earned. And as we saw in the book of Ephesians, every blessing is given to us in Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 Apart from Jesus, there is no blessing from God. Apart from Jesus, there is no blessed life. So the blessing here is not a feeling or fleeting emotion. It's a permanent condition of the soul who is happy because of all that is found in God through Jesus. What follows in Psalm 1 is not a cause for blessing, but an effect of it. What follows is not how to earn happiness from God, but how to enjoy the happiness we have with Him. But first we're told where true blessing is not found. It's not found in the way of sin. So the psalm, psalmist begins us telling us true happiness is not found in sinfulness. It's, it's not found in the counsel of the wicked. It's not found in the way of the sinners, nor in the seat of scoffers. The, the picture here is a person going on a journey. And they gradually begin to listen to the ungodly. It becomes enticing to them and they stop. Listen some more. And before they know it, they sit down to join with them. So let me be clear, this is not saying Christians should become social hermits and cut themselves off from everyone who does not share our convictions and faith. That would be impossible, number one. And number two, just think of Jesus. Anytime your theology excludes Jesus, it's not good theology. Jesus ate with and befriended sinners. But what's the difference? He did not follow their way. He did not sit with them and join in them. He was with them, but did not join. So friends, but not partners. That's what this text is getting at. Not simply avoiding the presence of others who willfully and wholeheartedly give in to sin, but not joining them in their pursuit. So the real danger is not just the company we keep, though there can be some wisdom there. The real danger is not the company we keep, but an increasing comfort with sin itself. That's the danger. And true happiness is not found in sinfulness, 
So be careful giving in to what you think is even the smallest of sins. Did you, did you notice the increasing poetic drumbeat here? Walking by. Standing alongside of. Joining in. This rising intensity warns us of the danger and the deceitfulness of sin. Think of it like this. Sin is like stepping on a down escalator. You take one step, and before you know it, you're all the way at the bottom. As the saying goes, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin does not provide the happiness it promises. You can think about it this way. Here's another analogy for you. Sin is like Novocaine. Does Novocaine provide immediate relief? Well, of course it does. But it eventually wears off. And what does it do to solve the real problem? Nothing. So it is with sin. Sin ultimately brings sorrow, not satisfaction. Well, what might this look like, Joey? Well, here are a few examples. A dating couple gives into their urges and desires. They begin engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage. Does this provide some pleasure? Of course it does. But after they break up, they discover they've only reaped a damaged capacity for trust and intimacy. A college graduate idolizes climbing the corporate ladder to gain power, success, and money. Is there anything wrong with those things inherently? No. But when that's the end, workplace coworkers become rivals and we scheme to make ourselves look better. And the person soon finds out having money, power, and success does not solve anything but just makes you hungry for more. A man secretly despises another man in his church. At first, he savors every condescending thought and enjoys the self-righteous slander. But eventually, he doesn't hold the grudge. It holds him, and now he's isolated and spiritually diminishing. A young woman gives into the enticing desires of lust and indulges in pornography. She experiences some satisfaction, but shame soon follows. She sees an image bearer as nothing but an object for selfish pleasure and now has forever unrealistic images in her mind that Satan can use. Where are you listening to the counsel of the world? Where are you standing in the culture around us? Are you looking for happiness in sexual immorality? in consuming too much alcohol, in greedily hoarding money and material possessions. Or maybe it's more subtle. Maybe it's in self-righteously comparing yourself to others. Maybe it's in pursuing a life that idolizes comfort and ease. Maybe it's simply living a life of autonomy, doing what you want, when you want, for however long you want. And here's the thing. Chasing chasing after happiness and sinfulness does provide some level of pleasure. Otherwise, no one would do it. So it's not like sin's not fun. No, it is. But I would tell you it's fleeting and ultimately destructive, as we'll see in a minute. 
That's the bad news. But here's the good news. There's a far greater and more permanent joy to be found. See, the Christian life is not just saying no to bad things. It's saying yes to something and someone better. So God is inviting you to take the hint of the pleasure found in all these other things and roll them up into a greater and more permanent pleasure in God himself. See, God finds your desires not too strong. They're too weak. And he's telling you, sin does not fill you. It only shrinks you so you appear full. But there's a greater satisfaction to be found in Christ if you would turn to him and trust him and treasure him. And that's exactly where the psalmist takes us. So he begins by telling us happiness is not found here, it's found here. And what does he say? Blessed is the one whose what? Delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So the happy person is not a curmudgeon known for what he's against and avoids. The blessed person is known for what he's for and enjoys. And what does he do? The happy person delights in the law of the Lord. That phrase, law of the Lord, some of your Bibles might even say instruction of the Lord. We, we can say the happy person delights in Scripture. The happy person delights in the Bible. The blessed know that the way of God is the only way to everlasting joy. And because of this, the blessed person, the supremely happy person, takes pleasure in God's Word. It's a bit provocative, isn't it? Usually, we think of obeying God's Word. But delighting in it. And yet, this is the refrain of the happily blessed in Scripture. Psalm 19. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The last time your journal read like that. Psalm 119, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. How can the psalmist speak like this? Because they know God's word is not cold, legalistic, threatening, and impersonal. Through the Holy Spirit, God's word is warm, liberating, life giving, soul-satisfying, and intimately personal. Why is this so? Why? Because God's Word, the Bible, reveals God Himself. See, the Bible shows us God's sovereignty and His steadfast love. It shows His might and His mercy. It shows His unmeasurable grace and unending justice. And as Travis showed us a few weeks from Luke 24, the Bible is not... A list of random rules or haphazardly placed moralistic story. The Bible is not a book with heroes we copy and zeros we avoid. That's not what it is. The Bible is ultimately about God's promised Messiah, Jesus the Christ. In the Bible, we see God the covenant maker and God the covenant keeper. God the promise giver and God the promise keeper. So in the Bible, we discover the beauty of this Messiah, Jesus We see the beauty of his life as he loves God supremely and serves others sacrificially. In the Bible, we see the weight of sin as Jesus carries it to a shameful death being crucified on a rugged cross. And in the Bible, we see that shame 
sin, Satan, death are defeated because Jesus rose again. And in the Bible, we see that Jesus is risen and reigning and soon returning to restore this world. And the happy person delights in this. The happy person delights in God's word because we behold the glory of the incarnate word through the grammar of the written word. It's how we know him. It's how we enjoy him as the Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to our life. Or to say it a different way, God's Word reminds us of the goodness of the Gospel. And God created you with taste buds on your soul that are meant to savor the sweetness of the Gospel. And there's satisfaction. So God's Word describes how we live life to the fullest. Is that the way you see it? The path of God's Word is the path to pleasure. Get this, every command in the Bible is a command for joy. Pursuing anything less than joy is sinful. Is that the way you think about the Bible? Well, the psalmist does. And this is why the blessed person meditates on his law day and night. So to meditate means to think, to ponder, to consider, to reflect, to ruminate. Day and night. That doesn't just mean like morning, evening. Right? We're reading poetry. It means all day. Regularly. Continually. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now, if I had to guess, some of you may be thinking something like this at this moment. I got up, I came to church this morning, and this pastor is getting ready to tell me I need to read my Bible. Are you serious? Are you serious? Well, that's not exactly where I'm going. But if that's what you're thinking, can I, can I get you to ask yourself why? Why is it that would be uninspiring and boring to you? But this passage is getting it so much more than having a daily QT. That's Christian language for quiet time. Think about it. When this passage was written, our version of a daily quiet time with our own personal Bible, our own neat coffee mug and and journal with with a pen, not possible. Think about it. That was not even possible. When this was written, most people did not have a personal copy of the Bible, of the Old Testament, of the law. They didn't. And so if we reduce this to have your quiet time, it's so much more. The psalmist is not saying happy people have a quiet time every morning. To be clear, I think reading God's Word every day is really good for you and profitable. But Psalm 1 is getting at a way of life, a frame of soul. Psalm 1 is saying happiness comes not from mastering the Bible. Happiness comes from being mastered by the Bible. Big difference. So if we're not careful, our interaction with God's Word, even if we read it every morning, can be like water passing through a pipe. It happens, but it hardly leaves any residue at all. Psalm 1 is saying, no, don't be like a pipe 
with water passing through, be like a sponge where water's soaked up. And that way, when you're squeezed, God's word comes oozing out. That's what it's saying. What might this meditation look like? Well, I wrote down ten ways. Memorize scripture so you can call it to mind. At work, on the metro, in the car, when that email comes in. Or even when you're riding the ski lift up to go skiing. Memorize it. Read the Bible in one calendar year so you grasp the breadth of the Bible. Take one whole month and read one passage over and over and over so you see the Bible's depth. Take one verse that you read in the morning. Write it in a journal. And then use it to pray throughout the day. I mean, I read Psalm 18, 17 a couple weeks ago, and it's just been awesome. Just praying it over and over and over. Speak gospel truths into the sin or struggle of that brother or sister. Meditate on God's word as you give it out. And remind that brother or sister, listen, Christ died and rose for you. You are God's beloved son or daughter. And then invite them to speak that back to you so you can meditate on it in your own life. Study scripture. So you can share it with that neighbor who's asking questions about Jesus. Read the Bible with your children. Speak God's parents. Speak God's word to your children as you instruct them and discipline them. Invite others to help you think through life decisions according to God's word. Make decisions with God's word as it points to God's son at the center of your life. Don't make life decisions by yourself. Meditate on God's word as you make life decisions. Make it a priority to come here every week to sing the word, pray the word, read the word, hear the word. Here's the truth. It's hard to meditate on the word of God day and night when this gathering becomes optional. Commit to a community group. Show up weekly, prepared to discuss God's word as it bounces from one person to another. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law they meditate day and night. I can imagine some of you right now, your your hearts are soaring because God's word is sweet to you. Even as I preach this psalm, God's word is sweet to your soul. It's palpable to you. It's enjoyable to you. You, you. You can't wait to read more of God's word. You want me to preach for three more hours? Praise God for that. It's a gift of grace. But for some others, there's a disconnect. You know these things are true. You're, you're, best as you can tell, you're not walking in the counsel of the wicked. You're trusting in Christ alone. And you know God's word should be sweet to you. You want God's word to be sweet to you. You want Jesus to feel near and warm. But it's just not. Can I encourage you, if that's you this morning, can I encourage you to consider God's grace even in your desire to delight? Your want to want is a gift of grace. It's not a sign of God's absence. It's a sign of His presence. The very fact that you're not comfortable where you are, that you want to delight in God's Word, is is a work of God's grace. Don't minimize that. Don't overlook that. Be honest with God. Be honest with those around you. You you don't have to hide. 
don't feel like you're a fraud. Here's the truth. A heartfelt groan, yearning for delight in Christ, can be just as pleasing as an anthem sung to Him. Let's go read some of the Psalms. Your fight for joy is a gift to us. Share it with us. Because guess what? Those who are delighting now, one day might be where you are. And we can come together as a church and help each other pursue delight as we meditate on God's Word. And Restoration Church, I just want to thank you. I want to praise God for you. You help each other meditate on the law so well. May God give us the grace to continue. So here's what verses 1 and 2 tell us. We can look for happiness in sin or in Scripture as it points to the Son. We can look for true happiness in the world or in the Word written and incarnate. Where are you looking? What will the result be? Verses 3 and 4 tell us what the immediate result will be. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So the blessed man delights in God's word, is living, secure, fruitful, enduring. But those who give themselves to the way of the world are dead, unstable, tossed around, having no root. A stark contrast. A planted tree and windblown chaff. And notice that this tree is planted. That requires a planter or a gracious gardener. And so this is not self-help, pull yourself up by your bootstraps religion. The life of the tree doesn't come from itself and it doesn't come from its surrounding circumstances. It comes from what's flowing beneath streams of life-giving water. And as I was studying, I couldn't help but think of Jesus' words in John. In John 4, we read this. Everyone who drinks of this water, that is well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 7. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of life of, of living water. So the Word of God nourishes our soul as it gives us deep roots because it connects us through the Spirit to Jesus. It's what happens. And because of this, the, the person rooted is rooted and nourished by God's Word. And, and it, what does it say? It says, yields fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. So notice a couple of things here. First, there's fruit. The Christian life is a fruitful life. In time, seeds of faith grow into saplings and, and grow into trees of fruit. Producing righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are all fruits. We should expect God to grow us and change us and bring forth fruit in us. But it's also fruit in its season. Healthy trees... Even if their leaves are always green, don't burst forth with new exciting, exciting fruit every day. So sometimes our expectations of ourselves and perhaps of others 
is that if you're a healthy tree, you should produce perfect fruit every day, every season, every year, henceforth. And when that doesn't happen, we get angry or impatient. Right? Can we be honest? Isn't that us? Like, we think, like, I should grow more, or that person should grow more. They say they love Jesus. So we, we would all like to see fruit in our lives. Maybe we'd like to see the fruit of conversions in our evangelism. But maybe this is the season when God is working on patience in you. We would like to see the fruit of well-behaved children in our parenting. But maybe this is the season when God is working in the fruit of humble dependence in you. We would all like to bear fruit of never being anxious again. But maybe this is the season when God will even use that to bring forth fruit of faith in Christ. So Christian brothers and sisters, God is faithful. He is a master gardener, and he will bring the growth. But remember, growth takes time and often happens in ways we don't expect, or if we're really honest, ways we don't want. Being patient in our spiritual growth is not the same thing as being apathetic. That's key. Eagerly desire, faithfully press on, and humbly wait. And as you do, remember that the text says, no matter what, the leaf does not wither. Here's the thing. If conditions were always perfect, there would be no reason to say this. But God knows Growing fruit requires days of sunshine and days of rain. So some of you may have heard the name Johnny Erickson Tata. 51 years ago, she was paralyzed from a diving accident. Eight years ago, she waged a battle with stage 3 breast cancer. Then last November, she was diagnosed with cancer yet again. Here's what she wrote upon that diagnosis. When I received the unexpected news of cancer, I relaxed. Knowing that my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. Jesus is ecstasy beyond compare. And if new hardships draw me closer to him, I'm more than content with it. That's a life whose leaf is not withering. Now I'm guessing if you were to ask her, is this the fruit that you wanted in your life? She would say no. But it is the fruit God has chosen to bring forth. We'll all face circumstances left to ourselves we could not endure. But for those who have roots in Jesus, not only will you be able to endure, you will be able to do so at the deepest, happiest, most joyful level. Not because of your circumstances, but because of the constant care of Christ. And that's what this next phrase gets at. In all that he does, he prospers. Immediately, we might think of material prosperity. God is not against material wealth and health. But it's never promised. Never promised. God's idea of prosperity does not equal the American dream. Again, God's not against it. But the American dream is far too fall, far too small for what God sees as prosperous. See, here's the truth. Our definition of prosperity must be big enough to include the life of Jesus. Was Jesus' life easy? Uh, I don't think so. Was it prosperous? I think we can say yes. Why? Because everything he did was focused. 
Everything he did was in sweet communion with God, aimed at sanctifying his people and bringing them into a fully restored world, heaven on earth. That's prosperity. So the, the focus here is not earthly trinkets, but intimate relationship and eternal treasures. When we delight in God's word and give ourselves to it, seeds of immortal bliss are in every endeavor. So Christian brothers and sisters, your pursuit of Jesus is not in vain. The Holy Spirit is changing you one degree of glory to another so you look like Christ. That is prosperity. Jesus is prosperous. You may only see what look like unimpressive seeds in this life, but in light of eternity, you'll enjoy the full bloom forever. That's prosperity. Not so the wicked. That's the force of the contrast here. The ungodly are blown away like chaff. Most of us, in fact, probably all of us, are not farmers, if I had to guess. And so this idea of chaff, vaguely familiar, uh, but essentially chaff was the part of the wheat that was discarded during the harvest. It was useless. No one cared about it. It had no future. So the blessed person is rooted and secure, living and prosperous, but the one who gives themselves to the shallow pleasures of sin is like chaff blown around by the wind. There is no root. There is no future. It's useless. It's dead. Maybe a closer analogy for us would be sandcastles. Right? So sandcastles at the beach, what happens? They're fun to build, but when the waves roll in, they're they're, they're washed right away. That's what happens. But it's it's faster and more fun to build a sandcastle than wait for fruit on a tree, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And if we're honest, we look around and we see people building these sandcastles with their lives and it looks like they're the truly prosperous ones. And we're saying, God, what about me? I'm trying to follow you and I don't see any fruit. The Bible's honest about that. Again, read the Psalms. And you'll see that, that that's not lost on God. But the only thing in view is not what's right in front of us. The most important thing is comes in light of eternity. And that's where this psalm takes us. Where are you looking for happiness? And what is the eternal result? Verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the psalmist begins verse 5 with, Therefore. He's giving us his conclusion. So here's what he's doing. He's inviting us to evaluate the path of true happiness by tracing it out to the very end. That's what he's inviting us to do. And so Psalm 1 tells us the way of the wicked may seem popular. It may seem prosperous now, but it ends with God's judgment. And, And what's in view? The definite article, judgment. This is the judgment that God will offer the wicked. The wicked, notice what it says, will be, will be, an ungodly will be forever separated from the congregation of the righteous. Forever. True lasting happiness is not found in the path that leads to perishing. So the title of this sermon is True Happiness. And judgment is not really what I want to talk about. But it would be unloving since it's right here in our text. 
There's a popular idea that goes like this. God is love. God loves everyone and judges no one. Maybe that's what you think. But what I want you to see, as we often say, is judgment is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. We're indifferent to what we do not care about. But God deeply and intimately cares about all that he's created. He cares about his glory. And his overflow of his character is love. He is love. And because God is love, he cannot be indifferent. The judgment of God is not a contradiction of his love, but an expression of it. And Psalm 1 tells us, the wicked face the judgment of God, but the righteous will enjoy God forever. See, the answer is not if we will die. All of us will die. It's going to happen. And the question is, will we be wicked or righteous? How do we determine which one we are? Do you notice throughout this psalm, there's a contrast. Wicked and righteous. There are two categories. There are two ways to live. As one person says, these terms, wicked and righteous, function as opposites. There's no grading between the two. Life is either right with God or it is not. No partly righteous, no a little bit wicked. End quote. So how do we determine which one we are? Who is the righteous man in Psalm 1? The righteous man here never goes the way of the wicked, not even a little bit. The righteous man here never gives in a sin, not even a hint. The righteous man here always, day and night, every day, forever and ever, delights in God's word. See, even if we strive not to give in to sin, can we say we never have given in to sin? Even if we desire to delight in God's word, can we say we have always, always, always delighted in God's word? Psalm 1 confronts us. Left to ourselves, we are not righteous. Psalm 1 comforts us because there is one who is righteous. Jesus Christ. And when we come to Christ, His righteousness becomes ours. By faith in Christ, we are clean, pure, holy, righteous, blameless, unstained, pure. And because of this, we don't have to face this judgment. If you would turn to Christ and trust in Him, He took the judgment of God that you might have joy in God. He bore sin that you might be blessed. Jesus was crucified and rose again that his righteousness might become ours. So here, here's what this means. As long as judgment remains someone else's problem, Jesus will remain someone else's righteousness. As long as judgment remains someone else's problem, Jesus will remain someone else's righteousness. But look, look what happens when you come to Jesus. Look at verse 6. Oh, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The knowledge here is not intellectual knowledge. Two plus two equals four. 
This no speaks of an intimacy, a delight, a relational enjoyment. This is lavish language of the way God knows, loves, enjoys, likes, delights in all who are righteous, all who are trusting Christ. He knows them now and forever. Isn't that what you want? To be fully known, everything about you, fully known and truly loved. Isn't that true happiness? That's the promise of this psalm. So Christian brothers and sisters, do you see what this means? No matter what lies in your past, no matter what sins you have committed, no matter how grievous you think your rebellion is, no matter what's been done to you to make you think you're clean and undirty and unworthy, in Jesus God knows you and he enjoys you. He is the lover of your soul. His laser-like gaze never wanes. His attention never moves from you, Christian. He is the apple. You are the apple of his eye, Psalm 17. He's sending Jesus to bring you into the fullness of his pleasure forever, the congregation of the righteous. Heaven is not a dull, boring postscript to this life. This life is a prelude to the real joys of heaven. Everlasting joy, eternal happiness, the unending bliss of knowing how we have been known and are fully known forever together with God's people. That's true happiness. So for those that are trusting in someone or something other than Jesus for righteousness, I hope you see the beautiful invitation of Psalm 1 to come to the one who is righteous. Come to Christ that you might be truly happy now and forever. If you want to talk more about that, you can come find me. Find anybody that's been up here. Talk to the person that brought you. All of us have to answer these questions. Where Will you look for true happiness? And what will the result be? Psalm 1 not only asks those questions, it decisively answers them. The righteous man, Jesus Christ, stands at the beginning of the Psalms and he invites us into the truly happy life by inviting us to himself. Will you accept his invitation? Let's pray. Father, you are so good and gracious. We are thankful that Christ Jesus is the righteous one. We are thankful that you are not against our joy and happiness, but you are for it and you have secured it in Jesus. Oh, how blessed is the one who delights in your law, delights in your son. Oh, how we long to know even as we're fully known. Take this word and plant it deep in us that we might bear fruit, that we might endure the hard times, that we might endure not because of good circumstances, but because of the constant care of Jesus through the Spirit. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.